Hello, and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. But I haven't always gone by that name. In my short-lived teenage gaming phase, I went by the screen name Canis Lupus, which many of you might recognize as the scientific name for the Grey Wolf. I thought I was being cool. I realize now that I was mistaken. However, Grey Wolves are cool. Very cool. And they are the topic of today's episode, as we're going to be discussing the recent Heredity paper, Natural Recolonization and Admixture of Wolves, Canis Lupus, in the US Pacific Northwest, Challenges for the Protection and Management of Rare and Endangered Taxa. This is a fantastic paper, combining traditional and new genetic methods, ecological niche modeling, and conservation policy. And it zooms in on a really challenging aspect of conservation, hybridization between genetically, physiologically, and ecologically distinct populations of the same threatened species. Is the mixing of gene pools a good thing, a bad thing, or just a natural part of a healthy functioning ecosystem? This is a big topic, which is why we have three authors today to walk us through it. And make sure you stick around after the conversation, as I need to share some really exciting podcast news with you. But for now, let's meet our wolf experts. My name is Raina Schweitzer. I'm a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Montana. And I'm Sarah Hendricks. I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of Idaho. And I'm Robert Wayne. I'm a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of California, Los Angeles. So maybe to start us off, you could set the scene in terms of the historical context and what's happening in this region that has motivated the study. So basically, wolves were extirpated from the continental United States around the early 20th century. And then around the mid-1990s, wolves were taken from source populations in Canada and British Columbia and Alberta, and they were used to reintroduce wolves to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which you know includes Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. So there were already some reintroduced populations of wolves and some naturally recolonized populations in Montana. But in the last 10 years or so, wolf packs were showing up in Washington and Oregon, and these hadn't been explicitly reintroduced to the area. So these were you know, most likely occurring through natural recolonization events. But we wanted to know where these wolves in Washington and Oregon were coming from, and then whether or not the existing habitat in the Pacific Northwest region, where these new populations were establishing, could sustain them. You kind of mentioned there wanting to know about where these populations had come from and their habitat use, how suitable it was. But your paper also has quite a policy focus. So maybe you could explain how the policy side slots into the aims of the study. Yeah. So historically, admixture has been thought of as a problem to conservation in that it could potentially dilute the pure population of a species. But we know that evolutionarily, species naturally hybridize or admix. It's known as the web of life concept. So it is important to consider these evolutionary processes in conservation. So part of the paper is looking at handling admixed populations on a case-by-case evaluation, also considering these evolutionary processes and adaptive capacity when considering how to manage an endangered population. Yeah, I think one of the bits that I found really interesting in your paper is when you started off talking about the fact that the biological species concept is used a lot when coming up with conservation policies, and I think any modern geneticist might cringe a bit um, (laughs) to to find out that's how it's working. So this paper really kind of has two different sides to it in terms of the methodologies. And because we're heredity, I guess we should start with the genetic side. So maybe you could explain the genetic work that you were doing to look at the admixture in this population and what it was you were finding. So the genetic work 
for this paper was essentially focused on determining the genetic ancestry of wolves from Washington and Oregon, or in other words, just to identify the source populations. And so we looked at the genetic ancestry using two types of DNA markers. And the first was mitochondrial DNA, which is maternally inherited. And then the second was the use of a targeted sequencing approach to target thousands of nuclear regions from across the wolf genome. And we found that using both these data types, Washington and Oregon wolves represent migrants from these naturally reestablished populations in Montana. And they also have ancestry from these reintroduced populations in Idaho and Yellowstone. And then what was really exciting was that for the Washington wolves, we found evidence of genetic ancestry from this coastal wolf ecotype. And this was exciting because before our paper, the mitochondrial DNA specific to this coastal ecotype had only been found in Southeast Alaska and in British Columbia. And so the fact that we found a signature of this coastal ecotype in Washington wolves suggested that there was some migrants or admixture that was occurring in the region, which hadn't been shown before. Yeah, great. I mean, with these ecotypes as well, they have some quite different phenotypes and behaviors as well, don't they? Yeah, so I think the coastal wolves are some of the coolest and most distinct. And so they live in these really lush, temperate rainforests found in the Pacific Northwest region. And they travel between islands, so they swim. They, at certain times of the year, will have a majority of their diet coming from salmon and from marine carrion. And so they really have like a different diet and lifestyle than wolves from elsewhere, especially we were talking about these wolves from the Rocky Mountain forest, which feed on much larger prey like elk um, and sometimes bison and, and are in general much larger wolves. Nice. So the, uh, the genetic stuff there is really cool and it's probably methodologically quite familiar to a lot of people who might be listening. What might not be quite so familiar though is the other big methodology that you used which is this ecological niche modeling. Maybe you could explain what it is you do for this and how it was complementing the genetic work. Sarah, do you want to take this one or do you Can want you me to? Can you do that one? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so ecological niche modeling is basically a way to characterize and predict the geographic distribution of a species. And so we chose to do this to try to assess habitat suitability for these reestablished wolf packs in Washington and Oregon. And so we basically took the known locations of wolves from either this coastal wolf ecotype or from the Rocky Mountain wolf ecotype. And using the models, we characterized the habitat where these wolf ecotypes were generally found. And we did this using, you know, a bunch of environmental variables that summarize like temperature and the precipitation. And then we used this established method that characterizes the suitability of the Washington and Oregon regions for one or the other wolf ecotype. So using this, we found that these Washington and Oregon regions contain environments that are suitable for each of the ecotypes. And we do see wolf packs currently established in Washington and Oregon in both of those habitat types. And so this complemented the genetic work because it shows that there's this capacity for current and future survival of the populations, at least in terms of the habitat suitability. Nice. And are they using all of the suitable habitat you found in your models, or does it look as though there's room for them to expand a bit more as well? 
there's definitely room for them to expand. So they're they're mostly uh, in the northern Rocky Mountain habitat currently. There's one pack that is using primarily coastal habitat, but we do believe that there's plenty of room for them to move over into that coastal habitat. All right, exciting times. And I guess that kind of leads on to another question. So I mean, one of the primary outcomes of this paper might be to kind of help us understand how we might be able to manage these populations. So I guess combining your genetic work and your niche modeling, what is this paper kind of telling us about these reestablished wolf populations and how we should be managing and conserving them? Yeah, so when considering protection of admixed populations, it's really important to consider a few things. First, you want to see if the admixture is a natural occurrence, so that it did not occur to atherpogenic influences. In this case, this is a natural pattern of wolf dispersal between the two native populations. And then secondly, although we didn't explicitly test for this, we believe that these admixed individuals are likely ecological surrogates for the declining coastal wolves. So you want to make sure that the admixed individuals have similar ecological functions as the native entity. And then third, this one involves selection for alleles to the unique habitat of the endangered population. So in our case, the healthy coastal populations along Washington may select for alleles unique to the coastal wolves. And then this would also simultaneously decrease the genomic contribution of the northern Rocky mountain or non-endangered wolf in this population. I mean, I'll just say that I think our study highlights the idea that admixture and hybridization do not always threaten biodiversity. So we need to maybe change some of our ideas about the role of admixture in conservation. And we need to allow for those naturally occurring processes when we protect species. Bob, did you want to add anything? Maybe just one or two points. To me, why this study is so intriguing is because we are really acting under what is the U.S. Endangered Species Act that was developed in 1973 or implemented in 1973. And there, a species or an endangered species is defined principally under typological criteria. That is, they have to be distinct in some way. And admixture is all about blending distinction to some extent. And even though the 1973 law is accurate, if they want to preserve typological entities, as evolutionary biologists, we're less upset about admixture, especially as it leads to enhanced adaptation. And in this case, where the habitats themselves in Washington are admixed. I mean, they're not the same habitats that were there 200 years ago, and they've been degraded and altered. And we really don't know what wolf is appropriate for many of these habitats. So we should have much more flexibility in the idea of what wolf belongs where. Now, that said, the niche analysis, where we actually look at environmental variables and predict where rain wolves should be, that's what the British Columbia wolf is sometimes called because they live in a temperate rainforest along the British Columbian coast, the so-called Great Bear Wilderness, which is largely protected. And suddenly they're in Washington state, which is heavily developed. But the idea is that instead of trying to use historical records, which the Endangered Species Act relies on about where a species used to be, let's look at the distribution of habitats now. Let's figure out where the most appropriate habitats are given the changes that have occurred across the landscape in Washington state and Oregon. So the idea that admixture might be a good thing, that we actually have to give new guidance as to where these wolves should be introduced given the changing habitats, I think is one of the novel aspects of the paper. That was Rena Schweizer, Sarah Hendricks, and Robert Wayne, three of the authors in the recent Heredity paper, Natural Recolonization and Admixture of Wolves, Canis Lupus, in the U.S. Pacific Northwest, Challenges for the Protection and Management of Rare and Endangered Taxa. 
This paper perfectly blends together genetics, ecology, and policy. It also has some stunning figures, which you'll just need to read the paper to see. And if you want to know what a rain wolf looks like, well, you can find one on the cover of the journal. Now, I did say at the top of the episode that I had some exciting podcast news for you. As you probably know by now, Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society, and my role is to bring you Heredity's highlights. But the highlights from GenTalk, well, that's the exciting thing. You see, at the end of last year, the Genetic Society launched a new podcast, Genetics Unzipped. Helmed by Kat Arney, a veteran genetics podcaster and the author of a couple of popular science books, Genetics Unzipped will be showcasing... Actually, you know what, why don't I just play you the promo clip from the latest episode? latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we hunt down the gene for Huntington's disease, find out why a chicken virus has won three Nobel Prizes, and discover the amazing science of spider goats. From New England witch trials to gene therapy trials, dogma-smashing retroviruses, and an ancient Chinese remedy for forgetfulness, we're unpacking some of the hundred greatest ideas in genetics. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. See? Exciting. You'll be getting two episodes of each podcast a month, so join Kat for an overview of the GenSoc centenary celebrations and a tour of the latest genetics research, and join me for a deep dive into the research published in the pages of Heredity. But that's us for today. You can find the paper featured in today's episode on the Heredity website. That's www.nature.com forward slash hdy. While you're there, you can also discover more about the journal and how you can get published in it. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you can follow Heredity on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. And if you want to get in touch, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.